So, Helena, are you popular over at the FDA? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, oh, I thought you were going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a mix. I think it's mixed. I do sometimes joke that I won't be allowed back in there, <laughs> back in the building. Uh, we'll see. They still take my calls, so. Helena Bottomiller-Evich writes about food policy for a digital publication she founded called Food Fix. So it makes sense that she's got the Food and Drug Administration on speed dial, even though inside the agency, she says, there's this joke that the F in FDA is silent. Well, you know, FDA is so big in that it covers like something like 20% of consumer spending, right? So it's drugs, it's medical devices, it's microwaves and cosmetics. Food is a much lower priority issue at FDA. And that's just that's just the truth of the matter. Is baby formula considered food? Yes, it is considered food. Baby formula, particularly the baby formula shortage, is one of the reasons Selena worries the FDA is not exactly thrilled to hear from her. She's covered the chain of decisions leading up to the shortage with meticulous care. And this might surprise you, but Helena says this formula shortage is still going on. When I go to my Safeway on Capitol Hill here in Washington, the supply looks kind of, it's like half, half-ish stocked. And that's not normal. And we're, what, seven months into this. That's not normal. And I, I really don't know when it's going to return to normal. I think probably it's going to be um, next year. In 2023, I, I don't, I, I really have doubts about it returning to normal um, this winter. As Helena waits out the shortage, she's also been waiting on this report, an explanation from the FDA about how a single plant in Sturgis, Michigan, first might have sickened babies, and then, when the government tried to clean things up, triggered a nationwide run on infant formula. A couple weeks back, this report finally came out. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to read this. And I was actually about to go on a podcast. And so I opened it right away and I skimmed it. And I went, oh my gosh, this doesn't answer any of my questions. And I tweeted right away like, wow, this is pretty vague. I did have high hopes for it and it came nowhere close to meeting them. Today on the show, why there are still so few answers about this continuing crisis for families. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. Parents of small infants probably will not forget what happened this spring for a long time. But I wonder if for the rest of my listeners, you can just remind me of that TikTok. Like, where would you start the story of this formula shortage? Yeah, I think the Cliff Notes version is... The summer before this all happened, so there was a recall in February, the summer before, we started to see kind of weird stocking. So we're talking like a year ago, summer 2021. Yes. Like, you know, there's so many supply chain issues right now across all products, right? We've all seen this, whether it's couches or whatever. So infant formula was starting to get affected. There started to be some lower in-stock rates, which just were kind of off, right? And... That fall, fall of 2021, 
FDA got it, the first report of an infant who had been hospitalized with Coronabacter Sakazaki, which is a, a bacteria that rarely causes infections, but when it does in infants, can be very deadly. And this infant had been consuming formula from Abbott Nutrition, and um, they reported it to FDA that this, this infant was in the ICU for like 20 days. So in September, they get a report. They don't go inspect the facility. FDA, you know, logs the report. I think one report, it's hard to know, like, what would the action be, right? It's like millions of kids are getting formula. But then in October, a whistleblower from the same plant that made that formula sends a, like, 30-page memo to FDA, like, hey, I've got real concerns about the food safety in this plant. What was the whistleblower alleging? Because there were a lot of allegations here, is my understanding. Yeah, Yeah, they were alleging some pretty egregious food safety lapses, like poor or incomplete record keeping or not keeping equipment up. Some some issues with like things like the infant formula cans not being properly sealed. Things that would be really concerning to anyone who's knows anything about food safety. Um, Sanitation logs, just a lot of. like a, a, a poor culture, too, of food safety, the fears of retaliation if you raised concerns about food safety internally, things like that. And this is a really big plant, 20%, something like 20% of America's infant formula was coming out of this plant. So this is a big player in the the whole space. And the whistleblower, I mean, this is a 30-plus page report that this person sends in. So pretty detailed, like not just a letter saying, hey, I have some worries, but a point-by-point assessment with concrete examples of things that have gone wrong in their eyes. Yes, very specific examples. And they sent this to several very senior FDA officials and also regional FDA officials. They sent it by email and hard copy. And one of the big questions we still have is like, why didn't the agency respond more quickly? So they didn't interview that whistleblower till December. They they sent this memo in October. They have said since, oh, you know, there were mailroom issues, people are remote, the hard copies like didn't make it to the right people. But, you know, it was also emailed to several people, to several really key FDA officials. And since then, we have another employee from that plant, former employee who has stepped forward and confirmed many of those allegations. The other thing that happens right at this time is they get more reports of hospitalization and even infant deaths. So like in the winter, they got three more reports of infants who had been seriously sickened with Coronabacter, who had consumed formula from that plant. So all of these red flags are coming in in a few months period. And FDA finally goes into that plant to see what's going on January 31st. So Hmm. months, you know, go by in between. And when they go in there, they find really serious food safety violations. So they use the term insanitary, insanitary conditions. And the FDA commissioner would later basically call the conditions egregious. After that inspection found unsanitary conditions at the Abbott Nutrition Plant, formula started being recalled. That, combined with a supply shortage that was already going on, meant a lot of parents couldn't find the products they needed to feed their infants. By the spring, fingers were pointing at the FDA. 
across the country, parents and policymakers were asking why it took the agency six months to pull potentially deadly formula off store shelves. They were also wondering why the agency hadn't caught unsanitary conditions before they got bad enough to shut down production. For its part, the FDA promised an extensive investigation was underway. They really pushed off a lot of questions. You know, they were always responsive. They would respond, but they wouldn't necessarily answer the questions. And a lot of the responses were, you know, we're going to do a thorough review. We know there's questions about the timeline. It was something that FDA Commissioner Robert Califf used a lot in the congressional hearings that were held in late spring responding to this crisis. I believe we have the facts delineated at this point, and we have initiated an internal after-action review so that we can make improvements to prevent delays like this in the future and improve our decision-making. So the fact that there was an investigation ongoing became a kind of shield? Yes, absolutely. So last week, the report comes out, and I've taken a look at it. I mean, I know you understand it much more deeply than I do. The first thing that stood out to me, this thing is 10 pages long, which isn't a lot. And one of the first things in it is the author saying, huh, like, isn't it funny that I'm writing this, but I'm a veterinarian? (laughs) And you look at that and you think, I think maybe you didn't understand the assignment. Well, one of the reasons why um, Steve Solomon, who's the head of the Center for Veterinary Medicine, uh, so it makes sense that he's a veterinarian for his role at FDA. One of the reasons he was charged with overseeing that was because he was seen as not involved in the initial response. And so a big question here is how does FDA review itself? How do you grade yourself, especially if you were involved? It, what if you were one of the officials who were, got this document or got the email or maybe got the email and didn't read it or didn't see it? It's hard for you to grade yourself and to really give a, an honest accounting of, of what happened. That's a legitimate concern. For sure. But, but that's not, we didn't end up getting any of the answers anyway. So yes, a lot of a lot of heartburn over just the lack of detail. I mean, he says that like more than 60 FDA officials were interviewed for this review and there's not a single quote or detail. I mean, you're you're a journalist. If you do 60 interviews and I have done 60 interviews for projects, you expect there to be this like richness and detailed picture that would emerge from something like that. That's a very intensive um process. And that is just, that is not what we got in this document. Yeah. The thing that stood out to me is that the authors of this report didn't show their work. Like it's a list of recommendations, Mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of support for why those recommendations are being made. Because I think I, you know, I read this report and as a journalist, of course, I want a narrative. I want a story. And it definitely doesn't give that. But I think the wider problem is that there's no evidence that's presented of like, here's what went wrong and why and how we're going to do it better in the future. And so even without a narrative, which of course I'm a sucker for, (laughs) there was another problem. I agree with you. I mean, it's almost impossible to tell how they arrived at the recommendations. And I guess one of the specifics that was revealed in there is an admission that or an acknowledgement, I should say, that 
FDA inspectors are given very little infant formula-specific training. And that stood out to me as sort of a new little tidbit, but again, does not answer some of the fundamental questions, like why, you know, these problems weren't found earlier, and then also what has been done in the last year to fix that? We are now a full year away from that first infant formula hospitalization report. And what has been done? And I have not gotten a a very clear and specific answer to that question either. After the break, if accountability isn't coming from the FDA, who can stop the next formula shortage? One of the interesting things reading this report is that it doesn't respond to questions you and I have as journalists, certainly, but it also doesn't respond to questions that Abbott Nutrition, the formula manufacturer at the center of this shortage, has raised. Like Abbott has maintained all throughout this that there is no definitive link between their formula and illnesses of infants. Is it possible that the shutdown of their facility was for nothing? I think it is definitely possible that there are infants getting Cronobacter from other places that are not infant formula. We know that Cronobacter sakazaki is a, a bacteria that lives in the environment. It's not uncommon to find it in, in kitchens. And so I can understand that case that they're making. And it is true that there is no definitive link. There's no DNA link that puts these cases and matches them to any findings in formula. So Abbott is technically correct that there, you know, an FDA has said basically we cannot definitively rule in or rule out that the formula was the cause of these specific illnesses. The fact is, Most experts doubt that the Cronobacter that made infants sick was just lying around on someone's kitchen counter, even if the link to Abbott's facilities is still circumstantial. Helena says even if kids were getting sick just from their environment, the FDA has a responsibility to figure this out to prevent the next formula shortage. If all of this is coming from kitchens, which most food safety experts don't think that, they think that there is a a formula Um, factor here. They think that formula, you know, we know that there have been cases in the past linked to formula, so this is a a known concern. But if it were coming from kitchens, well, we should know that too, right? Because that would mean that there are infants dying every year because parents have no idea that this is a concern. So I think either way, there's a public health issue here and there's a public health imperative to get to the bottom of what is going on here. Another thing that stood out to me about this report is that the FDA kind of shrugs its shoulders over the impact of their failure here. Like, they don't really talk about the consolidation of the formula industry and how that had this disastrous impact with the supply chain. They have one finding, which is that the FDA and other federal agencies do not have the authority, expertise, or resources to manage supply chain issues, which to me feels like shrugging their shoulders as opposed to saying, 
this authority would help us, or perhaps that authority lies with this agency over there. Did that strike you too? Yeah. So to be fair to FDA, they don't have the authority really to monitor or keep tabs on supply chain or stocking rates for infant formula. They actually had to buy private sector retail data because they didn't have it. Yikes. Yeah. And FDA does do some supply monitoring on different um, drugs, right? Because there's certain drugs, like I imagine insulin is one of them, where any shortage would be life-threatening. So there are parts of FDA that do this kind of supply chain monitoring and sort of keeping an eye on that, but we don't have that on the food side for any product that I'm aware of. So they FDA has tried to get Congress to give them more authority and more resources. And I think that is one area where, you know, technically that wasn't FDA's job. In this case, it seems like it was just no one's job to keep track of whether or not we had a stable supply of formula. And like, it just raises a lot of questions about food security. And I think it really revealed that we had not thought about this and about what could go wrong. And it's just an incredibly vulnerable situation to be in. It sounds like you have some empathy for the FDA, but also think maybe they've bitten off more than they can chew here with their resources. I mean, they're being made to bite it off. It's not like they're doing it themselves, but it sounds like you're saying they're kind of doing too much. It's interesting. Is it that they're doing too much or is it that we've never set them up to do what we expected them to do? I mean, it's it is a really interesting conundrum. I think the the bottom line where I come down is like if you ask a consumer what they think FDA does on food, there's a huge gap between what consumers think FDA is doing, like really actively regulating food manufacturers or food additives or all these other things. Um, there's a huge gap between what consumers think FDA is doing and what they're actually doing. Hmm. What do people think they're doing? I think people think there's a lot more oversight, like just regular oversight. Uh, I think people assume that most food additives have to be approved before they're put on the market. That's not the case. Um, like, remember when the pink sauce thing went viral on TikTok? It's the pink sauce everyone's talking about. It looks like Pepto-Bismol, and the colored condiment went viral after this woman posted video of her eating it with fried chicken. People So pink sauce went viral, and it was essentially this Florida chef was, like, making these the sauce, right? But since it's made with oil, it's a lot more like buttery and oily than ranch. And it went viral because people were getting packages, I guess, that were um, not refrigerated and mislabeled. This customer says it came like this in the mail in a Ziploc bag that leaked. No, no, ma'am. We're not trying this. Look at this. It stinks. But there's this moment where the F and FDA was like trending on social media because this person who makes the pink sauce was responding to a consumer question where someone was like, uh, you know, is this FDA approved? <laughs> and it's like <laughs> FDA would never have any involvement with like a new sauce on the market. Like it's just not anything that they would be doing. And, you know, it was this really wild example on social media, I think, of perceptions and 
What I find is that when I explain to people sort of how FDA works, how, you know, there's virtually, you know, very little food, actual FDA oversight of those facilities, I just think people find that kind of surprising. Like, oh, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't think that would be the case. So with the formula shortage and everything that took place to get us to that place where formula was in short supply, if that's a whodunit, like what happened here, what was the cause, do you think that mystery is ever going to be solved? We have one more shot at this, and that is the inspector general the Office of the Inspector General under HHS is investigating. Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have an Inspector General report. You know, you know, these things take forever. So I don't know when we'll see that. But that is really, I think, the only shot we have here of getting kind of a 360-degree accounting of what happened. Are you optimistic about it? Do you think it'll be better than the report you've just gotten? It has to be better than what we just got from FDA. I am optimistic about it, yeah. I read one piece of analysis in the Washington Post that basically posited that the formula shortage wasn't a complete disaster because lots of people stepped up to fill the void. I kind of wondered, given all the reporting you've done around the formula shortage, whether you'd agree with that assessment. Well, I think it wasn't a disaster, but I'm not sure if I would consider it a success that much of that response and much of the the ways the ways that parents and caregivers made this work was basically like the labor of moms and parents going online and creating like you know, mutual support where they would ship formula like across the country. So one mom in one state would go, oh, I found this formula who needs it. And, you know, that was really expensive and inefficient. So in some ways, it's it's great that consumers found ways to support each other. But I'm not sure that's an, a good outcome. And, and still today, I think short of, again, we know we have enough calories for our babies. There is technically enough formula we still have a lot of stress around this and we still have a lot of parents scrambling and spending a ton of time figuring out how to navigate this. It's not normal and it's really not okay. Helena, I'm so grateful for your reporting and your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here anytime. Helena bottomiller evich is the founder of Food Fix, a publication about food policy. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back in this feed tomorrow. Talk to you then. <laughs> 